Hey, before we look at James chapter 1, we're going to look there in just a second. Let me just say this. Everything I'm going to share today and, and pretty much every other week, I'm, I want it to be biblical. I want it to be helpful. But you know what? It's most helpful when a person has trusted Jesus as his Lord. He's given his life to God and said, I'm going to follow you, Lord Jesus. I believe that what you've done on the cross has rescued me from my sins, and now I want to live for you. If you haven't done that, that's the place to start. And a lot of times we kind of slide into a sort of religious life without ever actually trusting Jesus and giving our life to God. So if that's kind of happened to you, I understand how that happens. But what happens when we come together is not going to impact you like it could if you've turned your life to God and trusted in his son Jesus who died for you and rose again. So just want that word. Um, we'll be looking in James chapter 1. I want to read something that Dallas Willard said. Dallas Willard, such a wise and, and gracious man. He said, The constant character of the will, the human will, apart from God, is duplicity. In a condition of alienation from God, the complexity of the human will moves irresistibly toward duplicity. And not just in the harmless sense of doubleness, but in the sense of deception. And then he adds, few of us could honestly say that we do not sometimes have to struggle to overcome deceit and darkness within ourselves as well as around us. Now, I take the time to read that because the point Willard was making is extraordinarily important for us to grasp. And it's also thoroughly biblical. The prophet Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And then he asks, Who can understand it? Well, God can. He answers Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. God understands our hearts even when we don't, which is most of the time. Listen to a select number, and I could multiply this fourfold. But listen to a select number of biblical statements about deception. The psalmist says about the man who doesn't, re- doesn't respect God. In his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are deceitful. Jesus, watch out that you are not deceived. Paul, do not be deceived. James, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Or Jesus, again, watch out that no one deceives you. Or Paul, again, let no one deceive you with empty words. Or from Colossians, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Ours is a world that runs on deception. Unless we're on our guard, we will be deceived. But as bad as it is to be deceived by people with evil motives, that's only part of the problem, and it's not even the largest part. The greater danger is that you and I will deceive ourselves. You know the old saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. But double shame when we're both the deceived and the deceiver, as we surely all have been. Listen to these passages from the Bible, from Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves. From Job, 
Let him not deceive himself. The same warning from Paul. Do not deceive yourselves. From James, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Again from James, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. The biblical writers following the Lord's own teaching knew well the dangers of self-deception. Humans, they understood, are capable of self-deception to a remarkable degree. It happens all the time. Sometimes we do it in relatively harmless ways. Some of you have told me that you set your clocks to run five minutes fast. You do this because you're always late, and you need a push to get going. You need that shock. Oh, it's later than I thought it was. What I don't know is this. How do you go on believing that day after day when you are the one to set the clock to run five minutes fast? How can you be deceiver and deceived? And the answer is that humans are remarkably skilled at self-deceit. Or here's another relatively innocuous example. You know that you need to change your diet. You've got to cut out some of those calories especially the ones that are not good for you, and you know which ones those are, all the ones that you like best, right? Chips and soda and ice cream. So you you make a decision, I'm not going to buy ice cream anymore. And you mean it. This time, you mean it. A few days later, you're in the store, and you just happen to be walking down the ice cream aisle, and your mind begins to work. I just bought those strawberries, Well, you haven't actually bought them. They're in your cart. But I just bought those strawberries, and strawberries are good for you. But you know your husband won't eat them unless he has them on shortcake. And he won't eat shortcake unless he has ice cream. But you aren't going to buy ice cream anymore. Well, maybe this doesn't count. I mean, after all, it's berries. Aren't they like a superfood or something? And anyway, after this, you won't buy ice cream. And then you look, and... It's almost a miracle. Briars is buy one, get one at half price. <laughs> so you buy the ice cream, and yet you do it in such a way that you don't feel like you've broken your resolution. You haven't given up on it. You're just sort of delaying its implementation. Now let me say it again. We are remarkably skilled at self-deception. And the thing is, the better we are at it, the less we realize it cowboy walked into a Texas bar and he ordered three bottles of beer. And he sat in the back room and he drank them, a sip out of one and then a sip out of the second one and then a sip out of the third one. And when he finished, he went back up to the bar to order three more. The bartender told the cowboy, you know, a bottle goes flat after I open it. It it tastes better if you, you drank them one at a time. And the cowboy said, yeah, but see, I have two brothers. And one's in Australia, and one's in Dublin. And here I am in Texas. Well, when we all left home, we promised we'd drink this way to remember each other. So I drank one for each of my brothers and one for myself. The bartender said, well, you know, that's a nice custom. And he left it at that. The cowboy kept coming in, and he always drank the same way. And then one day he only ordered two bottles. And all the regulars got quiet. When he came back to the bar for a second round, the bartender said, look, I I don't want to intrude on your grief, but I want to offer my condolences 
to you. And the cowboy looked puzzled for a moment, and then a light dawned, and he laughed. And he said, oh, no, everybody's just fine. It's just that my wife and I joined the Baptist church in Longview, and I had to quit drinking. (laughs) But it hasn't affected my brothers. According to Greg Ten Elshoff, he's a, he teaches philosophy at Biola, we deceive ourselves in two primary ways. We practice what's called attention management, and we procrastinate. Attention management works like this. We avoid looking at anything that might suggest that we're wrong or that we've done wrong. So let's say I'm a dyed-in-the-wool political liberal. I will studiously avoid giving any serious thought to conservative ideas that conflict with my position. If I do look at a conservative idea, it'll only be to prove how wrong-headed it is. And even then, I'll only look at those that I think are going to serve my position. Let me give you another example. I have a fight with my wife. She raises several things that I've done that have hurt her. My immediate response is to raise several things that she's done that have hurt me, or would have hurt me if I wasn't such a saint. I focus, I focus in on the things that she's done wrong, or that might be interpreted that way, to the exclusion of everything else. I'm practicing attention management. The other primary way that we deceive ourselves is through procrastination. So let me give you an example. The Lord speaks to me about something. I know he has. He said, give money to this person or to this ministry. And I think, okay, I'm going to do that. In fact, I'm going to give 100 bucks. But I can't do it today. I don't have 100 bucks on me. And tomorrow probably isn't going to work because I'm going to be swamped. And maybe not Tuesday. And besides that, I need to buy a card to put the money in. I can't just hand the guy money. That would be gauche. So days go by. I was going to stop at the bank today, but then I realized I hadn't bought the card yet, and I won't have time to pick up the card until Thursday or Friday, but by the time Thursday rolls around, I realize that I have an insurance premium coming due. This is really a bad time to fork over 100 bucks, so I better wait till next week. And you know what? After a week or two go by, I don't feel nearly so strong about the need to give. And I tell myself, probably somebody else has already done it. So I go back on my decision, and I don't really feel bad about it. I've deceived myself, and I don't even know it. Now, those examples are pretty commonplace. And and someone might say harmless, though I don't think they are. But we can do the same thing about almost anything. God tells us through our conscience, maybe through a Bible study or a sermon, that we need to ask forgiveness from someone whom we've hurt. And we say, okay. But we employ the tool of procrastination until that original strong feeling begins to dissipate. And then we tell ourselves, you know, she probably would have been really angry anyway. Probably would have done more harm than good. Actually, maybe I'm doing a a favor by not going to her. Or we have an affair. But by attention management, we justify ourselves. We focus on how our spouse doesn't meet our needs. We rehearse our spouse's failures and convince ourselves that the love we used to have is gone. We tell ourselves how 
badly misunderstood we are. We say it probably wasn't God's will for us to get married in the first place, and somehow we deceive ourselves into thinking that what we're doing is somehow justified. If somebody just said, you're having an affair, we would try to justify it. Anyone in my place would have done the same. See, the kind of scenarios I've just outlined are familiar to everyone, even Christians. Self-deceit is so much a part of life that we're usually totally unaware of it. And yet it's one of the most detrimental practices, perhaps the most detrimental practice, to our relationship to God and our growth in grace. It's no wonder the Apostle John wrote, if we claim to have fellowship with him, with the God who is light, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. All the biblical writers understood about this bent that we have towards self-deception. They warn us about it again and again and again. But James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, seems to have been acutely aware of the damage that self-deception can cause. He refers to it three times in the first chapter of his great letter. Let's read that right now. This is, I'm going to start with verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word and doesn't do what it says is like a man who looks in a mirror, at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard but doing it, he'll be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious, and yet doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I'll talk about this in a moment, but let me just make this one point right now. Religion that God accepts will not save you. Only Jesus can do that. But there is a religion that God accepts and a religion that he does not accept. When in verse 16, James says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. It is self-deception that he has in mind. The deceived are themselves the deceivers. They are people who, in the context of the verses that immediately precede this one, deny their own responsibility for the bad things they do. They not only deny responsibility, they somehow to manage, manage to convince themselves that what they've done isn't so bad. I guess God made me this way. Or didn't God put me in a position where temptation was bound to come? 
But James sees right through that, and he sets the record straight regarding what God is really like. He is not the source of temptation. That's what he tells us. God is not the source of temptation. He doesn't tempt you. He's the source of every good thing in your life. When we sin, when we act in selfish, unloving ways, when we ignore God's word or defy his commands, we bear the responsibility. It's on us. It's not on our spouse. It's not on our boss. And it's certainly not on God. The problem is inside us. The problem's inside us, but the solution is not. The solution comes from outside. The solution is a new birth, a new start, a new nature through, this is verse 18, the word of truth. God speaks his word, and we trust him. We accept the word of truth he's spoken to us. That's verse 21. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you or the engrafted word which can save you. So we respond to the loving, gracious, giving God, the God who gave his only son, not by pushing off our guilt, but by trusting him and what he's done for us. We see the things that are in our way, the moral filth, the prevalent evil, and we accept God's word of truth. But then watch out for deception because it's never far away. And here's how it works. We have trusted God. We've believed his word, acknowledged his truth. We listen to the word. We listen to sermons. We read the Bible. We may even memorize verses from the Bible. But we can deceive ourselves into thinking that because we've listened to the word and understood it in some kind of abstract way, we've fulfilled our responsibility. But James, who understands human nature well, won't have any of it. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If you listen to the word and you're not doing it, You are self-deceived. Do what it says. One of the great deceptions, perhaps the most harmful deception in the church, is the self-deception through attention management and procrastination that allows us to think that we're doing well when we're doing nothing at all that God has said. And the result is that we think we know God when we don't. Our spiritual growth is stunted, our witness is impoverished, and we enter into this ever-increasing cycle of duplicity. This is so important for us to understand. Look, you can learn Hebrew and Greek. You can translate God's word from the original languages. You can parse the verbs and research the word derivations. You can read everything that scholars have written about it. You can write papers on it. You can teach it in seminary. But the only way you'll ever really know God's rich and active word is by obeying it. There are many windows on the word of God. But there's only one door into it. Through the windows, you can see much that will delight you and interest you. But you must go through the door if you want to experience it. And the door is obedience. Now, James has addressed two ways we self-deceive. 
We put the responsibility for our sinful actions on someone else, even God. And then through attention management or procrastination, we convince ourselves that what we've done is all that's required of us regarding God's word. When what we've done is just hear it and not obey it. But James knows it's the person who lives God's word, who is, verse 25, blessed. Literally, Greek says, who is blessed in the doing. That's where the blessing comes. Now, James moves on to a third way we self-deceive. Verse 26 says, if anyone considers himself religious and yet doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. The word actually means something like useless. It's useless, not doing anything. The word religious here is a rare one in the New Testament. You know, the Bible rarely talks about religion. This is a rare word. It occurs three times in the whole New Testament, along with a cognate of it, which is the word religion, which appears in this same verse. Only that many times. It has to do with keeping the external observances of religion. So for us, it's like things like going to church or giving money or taking part in religious celebrations and holidays. It's all about the rituals a person does. Now, James doesn't discount that. That's important to say. He doesn't discount that. But he knows that what a person is takes priority over what a person does. Religious deeds never take the place of a right heart. Now, it's possible to convince yourself that Father God will be satisfied with you if you just keep up appearances. You can deceive yourself into thinking it doesn't matter what you do, what you are on the inside as long as you do the right things on the outside, the religious things. But God only cares about those religious things when they are an expression of an interior life that is devoted to him and that loves other people. He cares about what's inside, about the kind of person you're becoming and are going to be forever. Some years ago, newspapers ran a story about a, uh, an elderly woman in Worcester, Worcester, Massachusetts. Neighbors called the police and said, we haven't seen her. Her name was Adele Garbery. We haven't seen her for a long time. We're worried about her. So the police talked to her brother, and he said she'd gone to a nursing home. So the police passed the word back to the concerned neighbors. Well, one of the neighbors realized that the mail was still being delivered, and it was piling up, so he called the police again, and her mail delivery was suspended. When warm weather arrived, <clears throat> another neighbor hired her own grandson to mow the old woman's lawn whenever it got long. When winter came, another neighbor made sure the utility company shut off the water so that her pipes wouldn't freeze. The neighbors kept the outside of Adele's place looking nice for four years, but when the city sent workers into the home to determine if the structure was sound, they found Adele's decayed body inside the house. She'd never gone to a nursing home. She'd died at home four years earlier. The outside of the house for all those four years was kept up. The inside was like something out of a nightmare. James knows that that can happen to us. All the prescribed religious activities may be happening outside while the inside is horribly sick and dying. The clue to what's happening on the inside is what comes out of our mouths. Because as Jesus pointed out 
It is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's our careless words, our unplanned words, that reveal what's really going on inside of us. We can convince ourselves that we're all right because we keep up appearances. We go to church, don't we? Give a little money, do the religious stuff. But our tongue gives us away by the -the off-the-cuff remarks that we make. Deception and self-deception is a gigantic problem for us. Now, if you're one of those people who just thought, maybe for other people, but not for me, you need to know that self-deceived people say that all the time. The more self-deceived you are, the less capable you are of seeing it. But if that's the case, is there any hope for us? Is there anything we can do? Yes, we can talk to Father God and ask him to show us any self-deception, whether in matters of faith or religion or relationships or personality or money or politics. Of all the people in the world, Christ followers should be the least deceived and the least deceptive. Ask Father to help you. Pray the wonderful prayer of David. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. And the reason you can ask that prayer is because your love is ever before me, and I continually walk in your truth. Because I know you love me, I can dare to ask this. Or this from David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. An old friend once said to me, that's a prayer for a saint or for a fool. I would add, or for a fool who's ready to become a saint. Second, so talk to Father. Show me any self-deception in me. Ask a brother or sister the same thing. Say to a Christian friend you trust, I really want to walk in the light. Are there areas in my life where I may not be seeing things clearly? That's a courageous thing to do, and God will honor it. Third, pray to love the truth. Seek it. The truth, always the truth. The truth you hope to hear, the truth you hope you'll never hear, but always the truth. The people of Jesus are people of the truth. St. Paul warns us that the only way to avoid deception, and that includes self-deception, the only way to avoid deception is to love the truth. I want the truth. Fourth, you're going to find it hard to love the truth if you don't love and trust God. Get to know everything you can about Father God. His ability, his joy, his unstoppable love. Those who trust him find him to be an ever-present help in times of trouble. Those who don't trust him find procrastination and attention management and deceit rising to take his place. Fifth, ruthlessly eliminate deceit from your talk. Wow, if you are on Facebook, listen up, people. Ruthlessly eliminate deceit from your talk. Jesus wasn't laying down some ethical standard when he said, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond that comes from evil. He was giving us priceless instruction on how to live a flourishing life. 
Paul adds that it's because we're being recreated to be like God, literally in the righteousness and holiness of the truth, that we must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. <clears throat> I was walking with my wife the other day. We try to walk all the time, and we take nice long walks, and we were discussing something on which we disagreed. Yeah, that actually happens. Talk to her about that, would you? <clears throat> and to make my point, which I still think is the right one, okay, I strongly insisted on some fact, but I exaggerated it. Not intentionally, I don't think. I said what I felt was the truth, but I said it as if I knew it to be true without a shadow of a doubt, and Karen called me on it. I didn't much like that at the time. But I appreciate it now. I don't want to be deceptive through exaggeration or in any other way. Deception is spiritually toxic. It withers the soul. It's deadly. So choose to speak the truth. Don't use words to manipulate or to get your way, or this is a great temptation for me to win an argument. That's like using a hammer in place of a screwdriver. You know, it can be done sometimes, but the good results don't last, and damage will occur. God can do remarkable and beautiful things in our lives. He wants to do remarkable and beautiful things. He can transform us into loving, peaceful, joyful children. But even he can't transform a lie. He can only denounce it. When we, by deception and self-deception, make our lives into a lie, we get into the place where the God of truth can only denounce us. And that life that's a lie always starts with one little lie that we tell ourselves or others. See, God desires truth. This is David speaking after he realized the untruth in him. And by the way, David had had an affair. He'd done some terrible things as a result of the affair. And it was a year before he seemed to have any guilt about it. That's self-deception at work. And the man that God said is a man after my own heart. David said, God desires truth in the inward parts. But that's not because he's a teacher grading a test, but because he's a father who loves his children and wants what is best for them. That's our God. Let's pray. God... I'm afraid if we could see ourselves as you see us we would despair I thank you for only revealing to us the truth that we can do something about But, Lord, this is one we can do something about. Help us to be people who walk in the light and have fellowship with you and with one another. Lord, impress this on us 
as you want to. Both for our great good and for your glory through Jesus. Amen.